Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Josh Healy. This is what I would recommend for you right here, man. This is called Grateful But Not Yet Dead. <laughs> that and more. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Havon Lar Alemi. Behind me now, my granddad used to say there's no Alemi like a Havon Lar Alemi. And it's all too apropos that I mentioned granddad because today's episode is called Family Secrets. On this week that we gather with our families to give thanks. Here are three stories about how surprising life can be when you're linked to others by blood. In just a bit, we're going to hear from Christine Lee, an Episcopal priest in New York, an absolutely lovely woman who took one of our workshops in storytelling at thestorystudio.org. But before that, we're going to hear from the Bay Area-based storyteller, Mr. Josh Healy, who told this story at the Mill Valley Library over there in the Bay Area and sent us the recording. And so here's Josh Healy now with a story we call Rollin' with Grandma. So this is a story about the first time I ever helped an 86-year-old with her medication. If there's anything in the world that's more awesome than a little old grandma, it's a little old grandma-in-law, which is what I have. My wife's grandma, Phyllis. Now, Grandma Phyllis, she stands about five foot one on a good day. She has bleached blonde hair, uh, deep tan and wrinkles from her yearly trip to Hawaii. She lives in San Jose by herself and she loves to talk liberal politics. But she is also deeply Southern Baptist and the only one in her family who still goes to church every week. So she's like a combination of Rachel Maddow and Dana Carvey's church lady character from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Needless to say, 
me and her get along great. <laughs> now last year, last year, Grandma Phyllis, unfortunately, she had uh, this pinched nerve in her back. Um, she said it hurt so much, it felt like Rush Limbaugh was sitting on her spine. <laughs> she didn't like it. And so she went to the doctor, and the doctor said she had two choices to deal with the pain. She could either get the normal prescription painkillers, or she could get a prescription for medical marijuana. And I think you see where this is going. Now, now, the only conversation I'd ever had with Grandma Phyllis about anything even close to marijuana was two years ago at Thanksgiving. Um, she had come over with her usual batch of home-baked desserts, and my wife jokingly asked, she said, Grandma, are these special brownies? <laughs> to which Grandma Phyllis replied, of course these are special, honey. I made them myself. What could be more special than that? Well, she was gonna find out. Because to deal with this back pain, Grandma Phyllis had decided that she didn't want any more painkillers, so she was gonna try what she politely called the plant medicine. <laughs> and now she wasn't driving much these days, so she needed someone to take her to the clinic. And because everyone else in the family was busy, yes, I was the one who was going to take Grandma to get her weed. <laughs> so I actually, this may be, I'd never been to a pot club before. I don't have a card, despite the fact that I think every other friend of mine does. It seems like it's so easy to get one here in the Bay Area. You just create or have or create whatever health condition you need to get one. I, I've got anxiety, I, I sleep too much, I, I can't sleep, uh, my fingernails are too tight, whatever it takes. And they have one. But this, this was different. This was Grandma Phyllis. So I was here to help her out. So I, the day comes and I go to pick her up. Um, and I take her to the club in downtown San Jose, the other club. And it didn't look like what I expected, uh, like some sort of grimy, underground, circus-type atmosphere. It was actually super clean, modern. There was brown couches lining the walls and soft indie rock music over the speakers. It kind of reminded me of Starbucks. And, uh, <laughs> So we go up to the counter, and the clerk's standing there, and he's this nice tall guy, and he's got these like Buddy Holly glasses and a ZZ Top beard, and you know, he's just super cool, I know he's, and he's just like, uh, so, can I help you too? It's me and Grandma Phyllis. And I can tell she's a little nervous, so I take the lead. And I'm like, yeah, um, trying to get something for my grandma-in-law? <laughs> Phyllis? And the guy, 
doesn't miss a beat. This is obviously nothing new to him. He's like, sure, no problem. Can I see your prescription? So we hand it to him. He takes a look at it. And then he goes into full salesman mode. He's like, well, all right, ma'am. These are our different options. You've got uh, purple arugula. We've got uh, Eureka's Envy. We've got Rainbow's Revenge. But this, this is what I would recommend for you right here, man. This is called Grateful But Not Yet Dead. <laughs> this, some of you may have had it. It's what I would give my own grandma. So this, this is more than enough endorsement for us. So we buy the prescribed amount and I drive Grandma Phyllis back home. And I take her inside and, you know, I make sure she's okay. And I'm about to put on my coat and get in my car and drive back home when kind of out of nowhere, she stops me and uh, she pulls out a box of rolling papers, <laughs> looks, hands them to me in my direction and says in her sweet little Southern Baptist voice, Josh, do you know how to roll a joint? I said, what? <laughs> well, what, what was that, Grandma Phyllis? She said, well, I mean, you know, I figured that since you were here and you know, my hands aren't too good these days, and, well, do you think you could help me out? <laughs> well, now this was a situation I was not expecting, but I'm supposed to be here for Grandma Phyllis and for her health, so I'm like, sure, why not? So I start rolling the joint, <laughs> and uh, I'm nervous, because, I mean, I want to make it good, but I don't want to make it too good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I have, I'm a professional at this with years of experience in the joint rolling industry. <laughs> so I make it, y'all still with me? So I make it in a mediocre but still presentable fashion. I light it and I pass it to Grandma Phyllis. And she takes it, and she looks at it for a second. And I'm thinking she might have second thoughts. But no. She puts it to her lips, and she takes a huge hit. And then another. And then another. And then she dumps the ash in the tray and she casually holds it between her fingers. I say, Grandma Phyllis, have you done this before? She says, no, I don't think so. But could you find me a paper clip just for the little piece at the end? Fifteen minutes later, I'll keep going. Fifteen minutes later, we're sitting on the couch, sucking on butterscotch candies and watching reruns of Golden Girls. <laughs> I, I look over to her and I say, 
you know, it's 15 minutes later. I'm like, Grandma Phyllis, so what do you think? How are you feeling? How, how's, your, how's your back? And she says, you know what? I don't feel any pain right now. Seems to be working. I'm like, yes, this is great. Medical marijuana actually serving a medical purpose. <laughs> Grandma Phyllis is feeling better and I'm feeling great about helping her out. So I'm just about to go put on my coat and leave again. Uh, when she stops me and she says, you know, Josh, I'm probably not going to need all of this. <laughs> it's too much for me. Would you like to take some home? about it for a second, maybe two, and smile and say, no, Grandma, my back is just fine. <laughs> Thank you all very much. You can't fool us, Granny. We know what you're really up to. You see, it starts out innocently enough, just a couple pups. But then, before you know it, we'll find you rummaging through the attic looking for your son's old lava lamp and blacklight and playing your Frankie Valley records backwards over and over in search of hidden lyrics. feel the sweat forming in the palms of my hands and a pit growing in my stomach as I sat in the back seat of an old Mercedes-Benz, which was being driven by North Korean officials. I could see a large figure looming in the distance, and I knew where they were taking us, and I didn't like it one bit. I had just arrived in Pyongyang, North Korea with my father and our good friend, Paul Kim, the airport officials had checked our passports and the visas that we had secured in Beijing, and then they immediately confiscated our passports. I remember it felt a little like being locked in the trunk of a car, and the only way that you could get out was if someone let you out. It was 1997, which was just a few years into a terrible famine that North Korea had experienced, where some estimates say that over three million people had already died of starvation. And we were there to deliver food and medicine from my dad's humanitarian organization, which was set up for the sole purpose of bringing aid to North Korea, that and essentially to bribe the government into letting my dad see his family. My dad was separated from his family when he was only 12 years old during the Korean War. And his parents had sent him and his older siblings to the South while they and his younger siblings stayed behind since the younger ones were too small to travel. And it was during that trip that the border between North and South Korea was closed. 
and he didn't know what happened to his family. He didn't know if they were dead or alive. And he basically grew up like an orphan on the streets of South Korea. And then in 1986, you know, after he had immigrated to the States, my sisters and I were all born here, the North Korean government somehow managed to locate him. And they informed him that his mother and younger siblings were still alive and that his father had died during the war. And they were inviting him to come to North Korea and to see his family. Now, by this time, my dad was a very well-known pastor in the Korean community, and it's very likely that they wanted to use him for propaganda. And despite the fact that the North Korean government had a reputation for kidnapping people, and my mother's tears and protests and concerns for his safety, he was determined to go. And after 35 years, he was reunited with his family and able to see his mother before she died. And he had made several trips since then, each time bringing this desperately needed money and medicine to his family. Earlier that year, I remember my dad sitting me down on the edge of my bed and saying, you know, Christine, I'm getting older and I'm not going to be around forever to take care of my family. And the second generation, you girls and your cousins, you've never met our family in North Korea. It can be dangerous. And each time I go, there's always a risk. Your sisters are married and have children, but you, you're single. And I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, if you get kidnapped by North Koreans, no one's going to miss you. But, you know, I didn't care about the risk. You know, this was my father's homeland. You know, I grew up hearing stories about North Korea, not the crazy place that's depicted in the news, but the North Korea of my father's childhood. And here was a whole side of my family that I had never met before, and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually meet them. I mean, at this point, you know, nothing could keep me away. We were driven to this large plaza at the base of a bronze statue of Kim Il-sung, which was you know, well over 60 feet tall, and his arm was stretched out in this gesture of benevolence over the city of Pyongyang. And as we were led into the plaza, Paul, our friend, leans over to me and whispers, just watch your dad and just do whatever he does. I remember there was a man in a suit standing at the front of the plaza with a microphone and dramatic music was playing in the background. There were North Korean soldiers with rifles surrounding the plaza around us. And the government officials um, handed us flowers and they lined us up with other people who were there, but they put the three of us uh, front and center in front of this statue. I watched my dad and just followed his lead as he walked up to the base of the statue and placed the flowers at the foot of Kim Il-sung. And as we walked back to our place, he said to Paul and I, when they tell you to bow, don't bow but just bow your head and pray for North Korea. And we stood facing this image of this dictator who caused so much suffering and death among his people. And at that moment, the man speaking gave instruction for everyone to bow 
and everyone lined up, bowed deeply, except for my dad, Paul, and I. And we just stood straight, bowing only our heads as we prayed for North Korea. And I remember seeing angry whispers and displeased looks from the government officials, but no one said a word to us as they led us back into our cars. Driving through the streets of Pyongyang, it was unnaturally quiet. And there were very few cars out as we drove to the hotel. And we were passing what felt like concrete building after concrete building after concrete building. And the few people who were actually out walking were almost always walking alone. And as we pulled up in front of our hotel, my dad leans over and whispers to me, look over at that tree. Behind it, you'll see a woman in a yellow sweater. That's my sister. I'm not sure if the officials even knew that she was there or what they would have done if they had known that she was there because North Koreans live in this constant fear of punishment and imprisonment and even death for what seems to be the most minor infractions. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see this woman in the yellow sweater watching us get out of our car and yet unable to approach us. We requested to be taken to a number of different places, out to the countryside so we could see the places that had been hit worst by the famine, um, an orphanage. Um, we, of course, wanted to see my dad's family, but instead we got the Kim Il-sung tour, you know, Kim Il-sung's birthplace, Kim Il-sung's university, Kim Il-sung's tomb, which was his old administration building. And we walked into this huge cavernous room that was completely dark, except for this single creepy red light that was shining on his embalmed body in a glass case. And no one looks good in red light, especially if you're dead. It was a, just a creepy environment. And morning, afternoon, and night, they would just talk incessantly about Kim Il-sung, their glorious father, and his son, Kim Jong-il, and how much they loved the people and provided for them. You know, all of their achievements, their teachings, their philosophies, and just on and on and on, they would drone about Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. And after a while, I just began to tune them out. And I was feeling the minutes slipping away and running out when we would have to get back on that plane and away from our North Korean family. Well, the day finally came to meet them. And I remember stepping out into the lobby of our hotel when I saw my aunt with the yellow sweater come rushing towards me along with my other aunts and my uncle and all of my cousins with their arms stretched out, you know, crying, hugging me, nearly tearing me apart. And we were all just laughing and crying like it was the first time and the last time that we would ever see each other. And I was able to see up close that my aunt had this moon-shaped face and a wide smile and these eyes that were sad and merry at the same time. And she would not let me go. I met my cousin Hakchal, who was this tall, good-looking young man with chiseled features and a mop of black hair. And between my terrible Korean and his terrible English, somehow we were able to communicate with each other. And he would ask me a million questions about the U.S., you know, what it was like. 
he asked me questions about God and whether I believed in God or not, or whether I believed God answered prayer. And when I said that I did, he just laughed hysterically and would say, that's nonsense. But then he would stop and say, well, I don't know. They only teach us one thing. And then there was my sweet cousin, Kyunga, who was just a few years older than I was, and she was pregnant with her first child. Everyone said that we looked like we were twin sisters. She didn't speak any English at all, but I remember how she would shyly hold my hand as we walked along. We went to my aunt's apartment for lunch, sitting down at these long, low tables on the ground, and they brought out two bowls of naengmyeon, which are cold buckwheat noodles that North Korea is famous for. My dad would always say when we were growing up how much he missed the naengmyeon that he used to eat in North Korea. After a few moments, we noticed that no other bowls of naengmyeon were being brought out, just the two that were placed in front of my father and me. And that's when we realized that they had saved up all that they had for just these two bowls. There wasn't enough to go around. And I noticed Kyunga with a roll of bread in her hand, which was likely given to her because she was pregnant. And we pleaded with them to share with us. You know, we could each have a bite to eat, we told them. But they refused. And we begged them, you know, how could we possibly eat these noodles in front of them when they had nothing to eat? But they wouldn't budge. And I realized then that for them, this might be the only chance that they could ever give something to us. You know, they didn't know if they would ever see us again. And we didn't know if we would ever be allowed to come back again. These two bowls of noodles represented all those years that we had missed together as a family. All of the memories that we were never able to have. You know, these times of laughing together and sharing dinner together and having holidays together, of births and marriages missed. Their joy in seeing me for the first time. You know, their gratitude to my father for helping them to survive. And I realized then that there is a dignity in being able to give to someone that you love. And that there's also a grace in being able to receive something from someone who loves you. And so my dad and I ate those noodles and we slurped up every last bit of broth and we told them how delicious it was and how we had never had such amazing naengmyeon in our lives. And then we went back to our hotel room and we just cried like babies. The next morning, they came to our hotel to say goodbye right before we were about to leave for the airport. And I gave them everything I had, you know, my clothes, my jewelry, my toiletries, as if I could somehow import some kind of hope and meaning into these objects and, and into their lives. I didn't know if this was going to be the last time that I would ever see them. Now, whenever I read about North Korea in the news, the first thing that I think of is not their bizarre, crazy threats 
they make to incinerate the U.S. or South Korea with nuclear weapons, or the rows and rows of soldiers marching in formation, or that 60-foot statue looming over the city of Pyongyang. Instead, I see a woman in a yellow sweater standing against a backdrop of gray. I see Hak Chal's earnest face and his hunger to know what was out there beyond the prison that he lived in. I see Kyunga holding that roll of bread and those two precious and costly bowls of noodles offered in love. This is Risk. This is Benjamin Gibbard with Amy Mann behind me now. And we just heard a story from Christine Lee. Want to say a few words about Squarespace.com right now. Squarespace is the easiest all-in-one way to create your own beautiful, very professional-looking website. The customizable design templates are truly state-of-the-art. You can drag and drop images from your desktop, from Tumblr, WordPress, Blogger. They process images for different sizes so that they look good on different devices. Lots of great blogging functions, great customer support. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code RISK9. That's squarespace.com. And the offer code is RISK9. Now, our third and final story was recorded at the recent Risk Live show in Philly. Comes from the brilliant Kitty Haley. Kitty has had a long and crazy remarkable career as a private investigator. But this story comes from a little bit closer to home. We call it It's All Happening at the Zoo. I met John 
on South Street at a coffee shop. And it was, it was love at first sight. Who wouldn't fall in love with a guy who looked like a tall Willie Nelson? He had on a motorcycle helmet. There was a BMW K1100 at the curb. And he was reading the New York Times. I mean, that was pretty cool. I was, it was wonderful. And, and it was strange because I had already had two failed marriages. The first one because, well, I guess I was just too young. And the second one, well, he kind of liked women. Unfortunately, lots of them, and he was still married to me. So that didn't last. And I had made up my mind by then that this was it. I was never going to fall in love again. I was done. I would never marry again. I might never have sex again. I was sure that it was all over for me. And then I met John. We went on one date, one date. And I gave him the key to my house. And I gave him the key to my heart. And we were inseparable from that moment on. It was, it was wonderful. I had two and a half of the best years of my entire life. I never thought that at my advanced age, because I was older, I was the cougar, not a pedophile. He was only a little bit young. <laughs> he was under 50, I was over, and all of a sudden, life was special again. I did things I never thought I would do again. I mean, sex was like, wow, eat your heart out, Miley Cyrus. I mean, serious. <laughs> it gets better when you get older. Just take my word for it. Okay. And I was really a happy person. And he gave me two and a half wonderful, wonderful years. And then something happened. And it was weird and strange. And I never thought anything like this could occur. But on his 50th birthday, things started to change. He started to forget things. At first, it was little. He forgot Where's, where's John's water ice? Well, that's only three blocks away. And then he couldn't dial the telephone. He couldn't remember how to dial the telephone. And he couldn't remember how to buckle his belt. And he was an architect. And, and he couldn't remember why the lines started here and ended here. And it was difficult for me to wrap my head around and for him. We had him diagnosed, and he had a, a very strange form of dementia. If you're aware of Alzheimer's, you know that Alzheimer's is this thing back here. It deals with memory of the past. My John had frontal temporal dementia. Frontal temporal, okay? He was forgetting the present. He was like a videotape of life that was rolling backwards in time. But it wasn't rolling slowly. It was rolling rapidly. Within the first six months, he lost 10, 20 years of his life. And he started forgetting how to do things, how to, how to do everything. His palate changed. He went from the man who loved gourmet food. He liked pate. He liked pad thai. 
He liked anything that was wonderful and luscious and exotic, and now he liked peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, hot dogs, and ice cream. And I couldn't believe that everything was rolling backwards, and it it seemed to accelerate. What had happened was there were literally holes in his brain that were being caused by like a plaque that caused the synapses to separate. So he couldn't get those thoughts together. The electrical charges weren't there. And eventually he even forgot how to speak. And instead of being my love and my husband, he became my little boy, and I became mommy. Now, I loved being mommy, okay? Being mommy was the best part of my life up until the time that I met John. So I loved, loved being a mother. And he was the best little boy in the whole world, except he was six foot three. And it was a little difficult to deal with a six foot three inch tall little boy who was frustrated and couldn't always speak and couldn't say what he wanted all the time. But he was my John and he had given me so much in that short period of time that I knew I had to give back to him and I had to take care of him. And that was easy because we had a wonderful time. We drew pictures together. He colored them in and painted them. We just loved life. Except one morning in October, I realized that if I had to watch Finding Nemo one more time, I was going to shoot myself, okay? I couldn't do it. And I thought, what would I do with my kids? Let's see, he must be, he's about seven now, maybe six. Johnny, let's go to the zoo. And by then, he had almost lost his ability to talk but he remembered a little bit, and, and he kept walking around the house going, zoo, zoo, zoo. And so I knew I made him happy. And by then, he really was my little boy. And I mean, he was in diapers. It was difficult. But I knew I had found something that we could both do. So it was a Wednesday morning. It was in October. It was the middle of the week. And the kids were back at school. This would be a perfect day to go to the zoo. I was really ready for this. This was really important because I was going to make him happy and I didn't have to watch that damn movie anymore. So I'm a happy lady now, all right? Life is good. And I say, Johnny, let's make sandwiches together. So we make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And he spreads the jelly all over the place. And he puts the peanut butter on it. And I hold his hand and I say, how do you want to cut them today? Do you want triangles? He goes, no, no. So do you want squares? No. Okay. Fingers. You want four fingers? Yes, fingers. So I held his hand and we cut fingers. And we wrapped each little finger soldier in plastic wrap and we put it in a paper bag. I had drawn a picture of a fish on the paper bag. He liked fish. And he colored it in, and I wrote John on it, and he was really happy. He had his lunch bag. And, and we get to the car, and, you know, I did what moms do. I helped my little boy man put his seatbelt on, and then I talked to him, 
And I said things like, John, when we go to the zoo, don't walk away from me. Hold my hand. Don't run. And stay with me. And if we get separated, you just stand still because you're so big, I'll find you. Okay? Don't go anywhere. Just be there. And he was, okay, okay. Zoo. And we get close to the zoo, and I'm fine. This is great. Except that as we pull close to the zoo, I realize there are 900 yellow school buses in front of the gate. And there are children pouring out of the school buses. And my John doesn't take sensory input too well. So screaming, yelling children is not what he needed to hear at that particular moment. And I was afraid. And I said, John, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. But it was too late. We couldn't turn around and leave. He had already seen the zoo. And he was out of the car, running across the parking lot. So I put it into the brake on. I locked the door. I ran after him. I grabbed his hand. And my little man, big man, dragged me through the gate, through the turnstile. I really was surprised when they didn't charge me for a child. But they charged me for two adults, and we went inside. Now. We get in the zoo, and I look around, and it's too late for me to look around. He's already moving, and his six-foot-three-inch legs are pulling me, and we go to the first animal. And the first animal is a rhinoceros. And there are all these little school children looking at the rhinoceros and pointing and going, ooh, look, he's got five legs. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he, he did have five legs, sort of. And I'm holding John's hand, and of course, he's way above the other children, and he sees what they're looking at, and he kind of, um, he kind of reaches down, and he's looking for his other leg. And I realized that's kind of nice. He remembers he's got one because he had forgotten for a while there. <laughs> and then I thought, oh no, no, this big man is fondling himself in front of a group of children. This is not good. Okay, John, let's go see the next animal. And so I start dragging him. And we go, and there's a zebra. And there's a group of children around the zebra. And oh my God, the zebra has five. <laughs> and the children are looking at the zebra going, oh, look at that. <gasps> He's peeing through his leg. Oh, my God. And the little boys are giggling, and the little girls are giggling, and they're whispering to each other. And I'm holding John's hand, and I realize that he's thinking about this whole fifth leg thing, and his hand goes down to himself again, and he's feeling his manhood, and the children are yelling, and I'm getting a little worried, especially when I feel an electrical charge going through my body coming from his. He's starting to shake a little bit. He's starting to be upset by the kids, and I can feel this electricity going from his body into mine. And I know this is my time to move. We have to get out of there. And so I drag him across the path, 
And I remember there are giant turtles. And so we head towards the giant turtles, and I'm going, come on, John, we're going to go see the turtles. You love turtles. Turtles are big. And there's this group of kids, they must be five or six or maybe seven, and a young teacher, she can't be more than 25 years old, and they're looking at the turtles. And as we get close, I hear these little voices going, Oh, he's going to hurt him. He's going to hurt him. Don't let him climb on top of him, Mrs. Thompson. He's going to hurt him. The big one is too big. He's going to crush the little one. And by then, my John is really getting it. And he's starting to put things together. And those synapses are starting to connect. And I'm holding his hand, and I feel Mount Vesuvius about to erupt and he starts to shake and my body shakes and at the top of his 53 year old lungs he yells no and everybody jumps back and the teacher looks at us like what's going on and he finishes his sentence no He's not hurting him, they're fucking. <laughs> Mrs. Thompson was upset. She looked at me like, why can't you control that man? The children by then were going, did you hear what he said? And I was about ready to bust a gut. I grabbed his hand and I said, Johnny, let's run. And we did. I grabbed his hand and we ran all the way to the other end of the zoo. All the way to the other end, away from these people who were pointing at us now. And I... I caught my breath, and I was laughing and gasping for breath. And Johnny was so proud of himself because he had put together a thought, and he had put together a word, and he might have even put together a memory because we sat on a bench together in this peaceful contentment. We unwrapped each little finger of peanut butter and jelly sandwich, each little soldier, and we nibbled our sandwiches, and we sat there watching the lions, who were doing what else? They were fucking.
And that is all for this week. This is the brilliant Ariel Pink behind me now. Shout out to Risk Music intern Matt Baroness for uh, calling my attention to this track. And before that, we heard, of course, from Kitty Haley, who you can find out more about at kittyhaley.com. Hey, have you ever considered purchasing as a gift for one of your loved ones a one-on-one storytelling session? Session? No, we don't do sessions here. Session, a one-on-one storytelling session with me over Skype. What a great gift. It's so fun and creative and cathartic. And you'll get tips and techniques that you can use for the rest of your life. Go get it at thestorystudio.org. And if you've been telling your friends to check out Risk, good for you. You might also want to tell them to check us out on Facebook and Twitter. In both places, we're at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And hey, listen... It's very important to us that you remember that Risk is listener-supported. We are very much in need of your financial help in order to keep this thing running. We are a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, a wonderful network of wonderful programming. If you go to MaximumFun.org slash donate, that is where you can help us out. Just make sure to earmark your contribution for risk. That is all for now. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. not hurting him, they're fucking. Skeshin?